For this episode, we've partnered with Needed, the leading women's health supplement brand recommended by nutritionally trained practitioners. Did you know that 95% of women who take prenatals are still nutrient deficient? Most prenatals are designed to meet bare minimum needs, not to optimally nourish you. We love that Needed's products are based on the latest clinical research and that they focus on care before, during, and after pregnancy. Get optimal nutrition and save 20% off your first month at thisisneeded.com with code FDU. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from National Fertility Center. Today, I'm joined by my charming and congenial and clever co-host and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And the one and only Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey, how's it going? Hey, it's going good. great. How it's are you guys good. doing? Good. Susan, I heard you did something kind of fun this weekend. I did. Uh, we went to the Texas Renaissance Festival, which I, I honestly have loved going to ever since I was a kid. And I think we went about two years ago, but between that and the time before, I think it had been almost a decade. Um, but it was <laughs> it was so beautiful. I mean, Texas is finally cooling down. It was somewhere probably in the 70s most of the day, oh, wow. like a little nice. breeze. And it nice. had rained some like probably earlier in the week. So it wasn't super dusty, but it wasn't muddy either. I mean, it was just, it was the opening weekend. So it was like the queen's birthday. So they had all kinds of like neat things going on and we had a good time. So I have never been to a Renaissance Festival. They have one here in Nashville, but oh I've never goodness. been to one. So what do you do at a Renaissance Festival? So you walk around and they, they have shows. So like we went to jousting and we went to a show that um, is like uh, birds of prey. So it's like hawks ah. and buzzards and owls and different things like that. They're all rescue birds and they kind of show you how they, you know, do their different stuff. I've got to interject here. When you said birds of prey, when I was in Scotland, I forgot to mention that we stayed at a castle one night and I got to have a falcon come fly on my arm and land on my arm. It was really cool. That is so, cool. No, it really wasn't. But we had to, you had to have this big glove on and it basically, it kind of knew its routine. And for each one of us, it would fly back and forth. And, but you had to hold real still so that wouldn't, its claws wouldn't graze you as it went by. But it was, it was really cool. So Carrie, they I've got said- a picture off to send you. <laughs> One of the birds was this owl and it was, I think it was some sort of like horned owl and it looked huge. And essentially he was telling the, the bird master was telling the story about um, how the birds have memories and he had gotten mad at him for doing something and essentially hit him and like knocked him down on the ground Ooh. a couple of days later. And so we all got to guess how much this owl weighed that knocked this like full-size man down to the ground. The The owl weighs four pounds. Wow. What? Because their bones are hollow. That's how they... Yeah. Yeah. Fly. That's how they... Okay. Fair. There. Yeah, I was just like, wow. I mean, and it was, I mean, the owl that he was looking, sh showing us was probably, I mean, 18 inches tall. I mean, it wasn't a petite little owl. I mean, it was, it was a male owl. So they weren't as big. The females are apparently much bigger. But what I learned too, is that the different color owl eyes, like the golden eye 
owls are the bigger ones and they usually hunt things like deer and like big animals. Oh, and wow. Not, and, so, and not owls, because it's true that it's false that owls sleep at night. There's some that are alive and active during the day and some that work at night. So that was really cool. When I was in Scotland, we learned about all that stuff. Wow. <laughs> Me. I was well, very even at the, the house across the street, just call it or a crow. I don't know what, I think it was actually a crow. He was very talkative, but that is the extent <laughs> of my bird watching. Besides the hummingbirds in my backyard with all my flowers. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it was, it was cool. a fun time. And so they have shows and then they have lots of like shops, things you can buy. And so I I, I bought... Do they have like wands and stuff that you can they buy? Have, they have wands. I mean, everything you can possibly like, imagine. Tiaras? Do they have tiaras that you can buy? They do have tiaras that we can <laughs> buy and I bought one. <laughs> <laughs> we can't wait to see you wearing your tiara, Susan. We can't it wait. Was, it was fun. I mean, it's it was only like $45. And I mean, it's not like it's a nice tiara like if you went to like a department store and bought a tiara for a socially appropriate occasion <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you went and bought one you would probably pay more than that i mean and they did oh, yeah. have a case that had like really expensive ones but i mean this one was like pretty decent so we we were with some family and almost all the girls got tiaras so it was fun it was it was a girl thing to do. <laughs> I feel like I should get one to wear around clinic and around my house. I feel like that would make bad days considerably better. And so on my behalf, you need to wear your tiara around your clinic and around your house yeah. whenever you're having a questionable day. I, I, I think, I, think I might idea. take that on. I might take that on. <laughs> I like it. Very cool. So I hear we are going to do a question episode on PCOS. We are. We are. Okay, so we'll start with our first question. Hello, I am a 28-year-old female. My husband is 30. Uh, we've been trying to conceive for two years now. We've done three IUIs and eight total medicated cycles, letrozole up to 10 milligrams, trigger shot with all IUIs, no positive tests. I do get good-sized follicles. Is this possibly egg quality? Husband's sperm is normal. I've been taking CoQ10 and other supplements. I have PCOS with AMH of 12 and all other tests are normal. What supplements should I be taking? We are moving to IVF now. Just thought with PCOS alone, I could conceive with letrozole and IUI. I have had one previous pregnancy in 2019 that ended in miscarriage with a previous par partner. Um, should I get anything else checked? Boobs. Yes. I don't know if she said her Philippine tubes. No, tubes. <laughs> Not boobs. <laughs> Tubes. Not, not boobs. <laughs> she didn't have those. have a boob exam annually, you but in you this case, You did those tubes. well, but in this particular case, I said tubes, not boobs. It Got sounded it. similar though. So yeah, fallopian tubes need to be checked. Um, I probably would check her fasting glucose and insulin too. I don't know if she said she was on, did she say she was on metformin or not? No, she did not. So I probably want to check her fasting glucose and insulin um, just to see if she needs to be on something that will kind of get her insulin lower, kind of help her. I know she's ovulating, but just kind of help her body kind of adjust and have a better glucose level. Um, might check her hemoglobin A1C along those same lines. Um, as far as supplements, you know, there again, it's always a quandary when we talk about supplements because there's really not randomized perspective data to really say you need to take this supplement, you need to take that supplement. Um, some people would recommend Avocetol um, for people that may have insulin resistance. So that would be a possibility. Um, coenzyme Q10 helps with cell division. And, you know, data has shown, and it's not great data, but in some older women, a little bit older than you are, that it may help with, you know, the, the genetics of the egg. 
Um, that's mostly been in animal studies. There's really not any human studies that have really truly demonstrated that. Um, those are kind of the main main ones I would think about. What do you think? So I would say the common ones, prenatal vitamins, folic acid, yeah. all of those types of things, making sure, you know, you're you're getting generally good nutrition um, and that you're moving around, especially with PCOS, even if you're not losing weight, the activity can improve ovulation. Um, and and having having that improve even when you're doing IVF is still a benefit because anything that can get you to a healthier pregnancy is we'll take any edge of the fight. Um, you know, I would agree with supplements. I have occasionally seen CoQ10 as a, a helpful supplement in PCOS. For the most part, it's got a, a more established history with people with decreased ovarian reserve, but it's probably not going to hurt. Um, so, but yeah. Yeah, but I would definitely say you need to get your tubes checked because, you know, statistically you should be pregnant. You do tend to be some of the easier people to get pregnant with things yeah. like letrozole and IUI. And so... The fact that, um, you know, there can be tubal problems that could even actually negatively affect your IVF cycle, like a hydrosalpinx or a swollen fallopian tube. It, it's not a test that it's like, oh, you're doing IVF, so now you don't need to worry about your tubes. I mean, honestly, we really don't care if your tubes are blocked at this point if you're going to IVF, but we'll, we really want to make sure you don't have swollen fallopian tubes or hydrosalpinx. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, all right, we'll go to our next one. Hello, I love your podcast and it's really helped me through my IVF journey. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Yay. Um, I just turned 30, had PCOS, AMH of 54.8. Oh my gosh. Ooh. That's great. That's so, good. <laughs> so, so for some of our listeners, that's a really high AMH level saying that she has lots and lots of eggs. Yes. Um, since stopping the pill, I have not had a cycle and I did not respond to metformin letrozole, or IUI with FSH. Tubes have been checked. We have done two egg collections and three transfers. First two were chemicals and the third was negative. We did the Bondi protocol on our last, um, prednisolone, clexane, and aspirin, plus estrogen and progesterone after transfer. We got four embryos, three good enough to biopsy, which we have sent for testing. We have tested at day five after transfer and my progesterone okay. was low, so went from two to four pessaries a day. Is there any other testing you would do? At my age, we thought we would have had a success, been successful by now. She's using vaginal pessaries? That's what I'm trying to figure out. And what's the Bondi protocol? I don't know what that is either. Um, apparently it's prednisolone clexane, which I'm not sure what that is. Does anybody <laughs> want to do a quick search on that? And aspirin. So essentially yeah. like a steroid protocol. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this looks like the the focus on this is affecting high natural killer cells, which there's really not good data that that is super problematic in the first place. Like you, you kind of need natural killer cells in order to conceive. Um, the the theory behind all of the immunology in reproductive medicine, um, the idea is very attractive, and it comes in and out of vogue every couple of years. And yes, so it does. And every decade or two. <laughs> and the reason it comes in and out of vogue is because nobody has been able to actually pin down anything mm -hmm. that makes sense either for causation mm -hmm. or for treatment. Yeah. Um, and so it looks like this Bondi protocol is addressing that. Um, I the thing but that in fairness, I would say sometimes people and I don't do it routinely, but some people do have protocols where they have antihistamines and you mm -hmm. know things to suppress inflammation in the endometrium. And so, you know, I don't think it's necessarily bad. I, I'm a, I agree with Carrie. I don't know that there's really data to support it, but I don't think it's necessarily yeah. doing anything bad at all. But most people have their own form of voodoo. 
And yeah. we all do. Way to say it. It. When exactly. she says that, she says it with love because we all do our own voodoo. Yeah. Oh, we yeah, all yeah, have yeah. Own yeah. There's no judgment there. Like yeah. we all yeah. have voodoo. Um, but the thing that caught my ear was vaginal pessaries because for progesterone supplementation, especially with losses, I am progesterone has really pretty good data. There's I don't know, like 12 studies out there that looked at vaginal versus IM versus oral. And the the two that were on top of the list are one thing that's only available in Europe and then the IM. Um, and it's because you get you get higher levels. And even though the theory behind the vaginal is good in that you're putting it close to where it needs to be. And so there was a very elegant study that looked at uteruses for women who are just about to get a hysterectomy and they checked and they confirmed high levels. But that said, the the miscarriage data isn't great. Like I would I would probably switch to IM um as as an easy let's change something up. Right. I would also say you probably need to have a hysteroscopy at this point. Um there's reasonable data to say that even if you've had a saline ultrasound, which I'm assuming you have, but if you haven't had a saline and you've only had like an HSG or something like that in the past, I would definitely take a look inside the uterus, make sure that, that there's mm-hmm. nothing structural. Um, I also, I, I consider somebody who's, we've been putting chromosomally normal embryos into and they're not getting pregnant, essentially equivalent to somebody with recurrent pregnancy loss. Mm-hmm. So I would also look for <laughs> antiphospholipid antibodies um, you know, it's not often that we find them, but we do occasionally find them. And when when that happens, um, that's important. And one of the things I talk to women about that have transferred normal, genetically normal embryos two or three times and haven't had a normal pregnancy is also doing the receptiva assay. It looks for inflammation, looks for inflammation that can be linked with endometriosis. You also can um, do a CD138 count when you do that biopsy, and it tells us if there's plasma cells there. And if there's a groups of plasma cells, it suggests that there could be something else causing inflammation in your endometrium. So I think it's definitely worth looking at that as well or considering that. Definitely. All right. On to our next one. I'm 37 with PCOS and an AMH of 12.9, clear HSG, normal results in all blood work, trying for eight months. I am ovulating. My partner thinks he has a varicocele that needs surgery. He's waiting on a consultation for that. His latest semen analysis showed 130 million count, 15% motility, 5.9% progressive motility, 2% morphology. His previous semen analyses before starting supplements one month ago was much lower. We are meeting with an RE who suggested we go ahead with IVF, but he currently has me on birth control pills for an ovarian cyst. My question, should we attempt trying naturally or IUI with these numbers while waiting for varicocele surgery because of my age? Should we rush to IVF? Thank you. So we've got PCOS, age, male factor, the trifecta. (laughs) Tell me, tell me what the sperm, you said something about 130 million per ml. That's the count. Uh, 130 million count is what it says. But in the motil- percent motility. 15% motility. 15% motility. And 5% percent That's not terrible. Uh-uh. 15% I mean, motility? Yeah, but 15% with 130 million sperm. With 130 million sperm. If you start with 20 million, yeah, that sucks. Yeah. But still a lot of good, still a lot of good like, moving sperm. Whenever we do semen analyses, even the ones that change, like let's say he did another one next month and the motility is higher. I feel like the concentration's lower. And when you actually spin it down for an IUI, you still end up with the same amount. And even if even if there is a 
solid amount of sperm there, you're still like there's still significant compromises there because you should have a considerably higher number. And so I would... Yeah, but would you say, but would you say though, that that really is impacting their fertility though? Because like if you do the math and I didn't see, I didn't see what the volume was, but it's basically 19.5 million per ml modal sperm. And then I don't, but I don't know what the volume was, but I mean, even if you had... 5% is progressive motility though. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, it's not going to hurt anything to do an IUI. Yeah, no, no, no. Burning I guess time. what I'm thinking in the back of my mind is, is this somebody that I would have do varicose seal surgery? What do you guys think about that? If he's having pain, yes. If he's not having pain, there isn't great data to say that it's going to uh-huh. potentially help. And I mean, I I think if, if you're thinking about IVF, it's a reasonable thing to do, but the surgery is more for his comfort than it is to improve fertility outcomes. Yeah. I think the other thing that plays a factor in this is how many kids do you want? You know, mm-hmm. If you just want one kid, you've got more time to screw around. If you, not that you're screwing around. <laughs> literally, 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 literally. <laughs> I mean, maybe you are screwing around. I hope you're on. Actually, I'm we want you to be screwing around. With each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway. So, <laughs> so if you only want one kid, you've got more time. If you know you want multiple kids, just go to IVF and bank embryos. Yeah. Uh, because even if you go back to doing IUI, by the time you get to your second kid, you're going to be 40. Yeah. And and that's challenging because, um, mm-hmm. you know, that we want to make sure you get the size family you want too. And, and so there's more than just that one consideration there. Absolutely. All right. Okay, our next one. Hi, I'm very grateful for this podcast and you ladies. I have a question. All my labs came back normal, but my ultrasound showed tiny cysts typical to a PCOS patient. My doctors say I have PCOS, but I have regular menstrual cycles and I'm not sure if I actually have PCOS. I do have type 1 diabetes, but a very controlled A1C of 6.6. I have not been able to lose weight, which has been frustrating. The weight gain makes me believe I might have PCOS, but not sure. What do you think? Is weight gain in cysts and ovaries enough to diagnose PCOS? So no. So the diagnosis of PCOS, and I always say we try and put PCOS sort of into a box and not everybody fits perfectly in that box. But really the diagnostic criteria, there's three different things. And if you have two of the three, then voila, you have PCOS. So one is cystic appearing ovaries, so more than 20 microfollicles on both of your ovaries. Um, basically, the other one is irregular cycles, cycles more than 34 days apart, less than 24 days apart, somewhere in that range. Um, and then some evidence of male hormone levels, and that can either be serum blood tests, like testing for testosterone and things like androgen down, or it can be things like acne and that sort of thing or hair growth. And so if you have two of those three, that's what we say is diagnostic for PCOS. Now, from a fertility standpoint, what I always say to patients is, you know, honestly, I don't really care whether we make the diagnosis or not. What will impact your fertility is if you're not making an egg every month. So if you're not making an egg every month, then we need to work on that because that's really what's impeding your fertility. And it sounds like she's having regular menses, right? Mm -hmm. And she says she is ovulating which suggests that she's ovulating every month. Although you can have people who have relatively regular menses who aren't ovulating. So I think that's probably worth tracking down. Do you have a day 21 progesterone level that's high that proves it? You know, at the very least ovulation predictor kits. But even then in PCOS patients, OPKs are notoriously unreliable because they're picking up an LH surge only 
PCOS patients often have kind of a chronically high P, uh, LH level. And so it shows up positive when it's really not high enough to functionally um, cause ovulation. So I'm I'm always kind of suspicious of that. And there's, there's generalized ovulatory dysfunction um, that you can have that even if you don't hit the criteria for PCOS, like Abby said, it's uh, ovulatory dysfunction NOS, not other specified, <laughs> not otherwise specified. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter how, how we get you, as long as we get you ovulating somehow. And I'm, it, I'm not sure that you really are. And I, I do like to tell our listeners that sometimes we have people who get really hung up on, I need to have a diagnosis. I need to know exactly what I am. I need to have my label and realize that not everybody, I mean, just like everything else in the world, not everybody fits into a specific label. And you may not fit into a specific label right now, but if certain things happen, you may. <laughs> and what we mean by that is, especially with PCOS, like we have people, you have like the classic PCOS person who always had irregular periods. And then as they got a little bit older, they started putting on weight and now they have hair growth and acne and all these types of things. Not everybody looks like that. Um, we do have some people who are lean, lean PCOSers, okay? We also have people who have ovaries that appear polycystic, but they seem to be ovulating on a regular basis. And as they gain weight, they have a magical weight within their own constitution. It's not the same for everybody. So it's not like, oh, you get to 158 pounds and you're going to become irregularly ovulating. There's a, there's a, point where your body's like, mm, you just kind of tip the scales of where we're ready to do this anymore and we're not going to ovulate now. So, you know, I, I think of PCOS as a spectrum. And yes, mm -hmm. we do have definitive guidelines of what officially is PCOS. But again, don't don't focus too much on the labels. Focus more on what you and your physician can work towards to help you achieve your best results, which is growing your family. Agreed. What else we got? All right. My dermatologist prescribes spironolactone for acne treatment. I know it's sometimes used for PCOS and has some anti-androgen effects, so I'm curious if it could have any long-term effects on fertility. I'm not trying to conceive, but I'm in my mid-30s, so I want to avoid anything that might further reduce the quality of my eggs. Yeah, I don't think so. Spironolactone actually was developed as a as an antihypertensive like 30 years ago or something. And it's kind of one of those drugs that has hung on because it's so good at decreasing hair growth and acne. It, it impairs, um, I think, conversion from, is it from testosterone to anestrine I can't remember the exact conversion, but it decreases male hormone levels at the hair level. And so it's really good for um, treating like hair growth and things like that. Although you do have to take it for a few months before it kind of really kicks in, but I don't think it has any lasting effects. I think it's gone when it's gone, and I don't think it would. I don't think it negatively impacts your um, ovaries. And in fact, to that end, there was a study I think a couple of years ago um, that came out that showed that women who were transitioning to men. Um, when they were taking mm -hmm. testosterone, even when they took testosterone, even after they had hair growth and all that, when they stopped testosterone, they were still able to go through IVF and still were able to retrieve eggs. So I don't think it has any, even testosterone, which would be way more potent, potent than spironolactone um, as far as the you know, affecting male hormone levels, it typically um, didn't cause a problem in people that ultimately wanted to do IVF. I think for people who are actively taking it and... Um... And 
and trying to conceive. Uh, usually we stop people in that scenario because we don't want you on any hormonally active meds besides a very select few when you're trying to get pregnant. Um, I think sometimes it can interfere with periods, but it tends to revert pretty quickly once you once you're off of it. Um, and so I don't think this is going to be a long-term fertility effect. It may just impair it a little bit. You know, there may be it, it just temporarily while you're taking it, but we don't want you to get pregnant while you're on it anyway. So I don't know that that's a big issue either. Yeah. I, I think the important thing is sometimes I see people who are trying to conceive and they may see somebody who's not a specialist, not an RE, or maybe not even an OB-GYN and they'll get put on spironolactone. Um, to help them quote with their PCOS and they're trying to get pregnant. And that generally is not a great idea. So if, mm -mm. if you are trying to conceive and somebody has prescribed you spironolactone, you either need to not be trying to conceive or you need to stop your spironolactone. I think that's probably actually the most important public service when I, announcement. <laughs> when I pull up a quick literature search of that, there's a beautiful article talking about ovulation induction with spironolactone from 1981. Ah! <laughs> Older than I am. Yeah. I was five. <laughs> All right. Awesome you have. Okay, here's another one. I am 36 and have been diagnosed with PCOS, one polycystic ovary, and irregular periods. I stopped combined oral contraceptive pills in, uh, in October, had a had three 34-ish day cycles, then a 50-day cycle, and then two three to four day bleeds in a month. I have a normal BMI. I remember having regular periods before, but I really didn't pay attention to the exact cycle lengths. However, I'm skeptical as my LH and FSH are always low. Normal sorry, normal testosterone and sex hormone binding globulin. I have a Mira analyzer, and my E3G mildly fluctuates, but on the low side. Although within the normal range they give for the early follicular phase. I have That's normal... estrogen, estrogen, um, she's saying? It's a urinary okay. estrogen metabolite. Oh, uh, okay. I have normal thyroid function tests and prolactin in the last year, AMH 23.6. These these ladies are like busting it with the AMHs. Oh, no. I love it. Um, does this fit with PCOS or another hormonal imbalance? I plan to try letrozole, but question, will it work with low estrogen? So my first question, if you were sitting in front of me in the office, would be, how much do you exercise? What do you eat? Are you under a lot of stress? Um, I don't know what your BMI is, but you said it was normal. So I'd be interested to know if it was low normal. But a lot of what you're saying really fits more with another condition that we've talked about before called hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, those patients tend to have lower estrogen levels throughout. Um, you know, your psych, and there's, like Susan said, it's sort of a continuum as people start to develop that. Like if you're, if you're starting to exercise more and you're starting to limit your calories more, your cycles may start to get erratic and then eventually that you can stop having them. And that's, you know, with PCOS, the same thing happens as you gain weight. So without really knowing a lot more details, I would, if I were, if you were my patient, I would check your FSH, LH estrogen. I probably would do an ultrasound too, because Patients that have hypothalamic amenorrhea tend to have thinner endometrial linings. People with that condition can have lots of eggs on their ovaries because they're young and healthy and they have lots of eggs. So just because your AMH is high doesn't mean it has to go along just with PCOS. Young, healthy women that have other conditions that don't ovulate can also have really polycystic appearing ovaries. Oh, I don't know if anything to add to that. <laughs> Y'all want to do one more? Sure. Okay. 
Um, Carrie, you're going to love this one. It's it's all about cysts and PCOS and other cysts. Um, oh, jeez. <laughs> I'll get my soapbox ready. I know. I know. Hello. I want to start by thanking you so much for your podcast. I've been, it's been a bright spot in a difficult journey and feeling educated through the process has been invaluable. My question, I recently had a cinehistogram in FemView, both with saline and air, done to check the fallopian blockages because a tubal dye study was not covered by insurance. The good news, it was successful. The bad news is it was the most painful procedure I've ever experienced, including IUD insertion and removal. Oh, wow. Usually ID, IUDs are the worst. <laughs> yeah. I was expecting mild cramping, but not the severe pain that came from the catheter insertion and saline plus air injection. I have PCOS for years and I'm no stranger to pain like ruptured cysts. But why was this so extreme? So... There's spasming that can happen whenever whenever you push anything into the uterus, the uterus's reaction is, nope, get out. And, and so there's a <laughs> spasm or a cramp or a contraction. And so what that what it's doing when you're putting a catheter in there, plus you're putting in the air or saline or whatever kind of fluid it is, you know, whether it's an HSG, an SIS, any of these variations, the general principle is all the same. You're shoving more fluid in there than it really wants to have in there. The tubes see that and they are extremely persnickety and they go, hell no. And they clamp down, shut the door. <laughs> so now this fluid has nowhere to go except out and down, which oftentimes there's a balloon blocking that so that we can actually get a clearer view. And so the end result is your uterus is just flipping out. And so it hurts like hell. Um, and so, so that is probably why it hurts. Um, and we're really sorry, but it's really helpful to get that information. Um, and so when you're talking about other things like ruptured cysts and, and, and other forms of pelvic pain, you know, IUD insertion, all those things, there's two general things that cause the pain. One is you're pissing off the uterus. The other is you're pissing off everything outside the uterus. <laughs> and so, you know, IUDs and and all of these fertility procedures, they tick off the uterus. Now, it's a temporary tick off and the the uterus doesn't hold a grudge. Uh, tubes will hold a grudge. Uterus won't hold a grudge. Um, and so it clears up relatively quickly, like a couple of doses of ibuprofen later and you're better. That's a little bit different than a ruptured cyst where there's a bunch of blood that just dumps into your pelvis and that that sticks around a little bit longer um, in varying severity levels. So, so Abby, you want to talk a little bit about the difference between the the cysts of polycystic ovary and ruptured <laughs> ovarian cysts, just because I know sometimes people get these confused and I think it's important for our listeners to understand. Yeah, I had a cyst talk with some patients today too. Everybody is always confused because we use the term cyst very loosely. And so polycystic ovary syndrome, which we've talked about often, is really a terrible name because really they're little tiny baby eggs. They just haven't grown and they're in a little tiny bit of fluid. So they look cystic on ultrasound, but they're, we like those. We love when your AMH is high. We love when you have a lot of little eggs because as I was telling one of my patients today, that's great when you have those because that's the one thing. If you don't have many eggs, we can't put the eggs back into you. So we love when people have lots of little eggs on their ovaries. And so polycystic ovaries really are Poly poly egg ovaries is really what they are. They have you have lots and lots poly of polyfollicular ovaries. Polyfollicular ovaries. PFOS. Cyst can be pathologic. They can be normal. So in, if you ovulate every month, technically you have a cyst every month. Now the cyst breaks open about mid cycle and the egg comes out, and that's a pretty normal process. 
Um, the, the, the sac around the egg called the corpus luteum has a lot of blood vessels. And so its job, its whole sole job is to get progesterone, start producing progesterone and pump progesterone out to your body so that you don't miscarry an embryo if it implants. And so there's a lot of blood vessels in the corpus luteum. We all know when we do surgery, if somebody's ovulated, you don't want to poke a corpus luteum because it really bleeds. And so if you have a corpus luteum that pops, when the egg pops out, if it, if it causes bleeding every now and then, that process goes awry. And so you bleed out into your body cavity and that can cause a lot of pain and, and discomfort. Typically, those types of cysts kind of close over. Most people don't have, fortunately don't have to go to surgery and have that removed, but you can have pain for a day or two until your body kind of repairs that area. And then sometimes you can have um, basically leftover clot in that corpus luteum and it can look like a big cyst, but that will eventually resolve and go away within one to two cycles. So it's sort of a, a normal process that's a little gone a little bit awry, but your body kind of repairs that after a month or two and gets rid of that cyst. All right. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's all we've got for you today. So to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. We would love to hear from you and love to hear your um, suggestions. Hop on Facebook, Instagram, send us a message, and um, we hope to see you soon. You can also visit fertilitydoctorsedcensor.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All the questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We always want to know what you want to hear. And as always, the podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.